in terms of land area inequality. So you will have among the most unequal countries in the world, the Latin American countries, followed by Asian and African countries. Hi, I'm Clémentine Vanifontaire. I'm an assistant professor of economics at the University of Toronto, and this is Inequality Talks. Yajna Govin is a PhD student at the Paris School of Economics and at the French Institute for Demographic Studies. She's also a research fellow at the World Inequality Lab. Her research interests include migration, public economics, development and economic history. She is particularly interested in studying how inequality, post-colonialism and migration interact with each other. She talked to me about her recent research project trying to map the inequal distribution of land across the world. Hi, Adja. How are you? Hi, I'm good. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thank you for being here. I'm really happy to talk about your work today on global land inequality. So we know that agricultural land is a crucial resources for many, many people in the world and particularly in developing countries. And in your work with Luis Baulus and Philippe Novokmet, you attempt to build together a really ambitious project, which is to give us a full comprehensive picture of uh, land inequality and its distribution in the world. Why do you think land concentration matters so much? And what are the economic consequences behind land inequality? So uh, land inequality is, as you were saying, it's super important. It has been relevant for, a, and is still relevant for a large part of the population, especially the poorest. And it can have a lot of implications in terms of growth and development. Investment in education might be different depending on the concentration of land. If you have very highly concentrated land, it's uh, the government or the, the country is going to invest differently in education because it might go against uh, the land elites in the country. You can think about the financial market development, whereby people who do not have access to land will have restricted access to the credit market, and that might lead to different equilibriums in, in the market. And in your work, you, uh, I want to discuss the specificity of your approach. Uh, and you basically, when you try to measure land inequality, you point at, to a very important distinction between land ownership and land utilization. Can you tell us more about that and why it matters so much uh, in terms of how we measure land inequality? The first question that we need to ask ourselves is what we want to measure. So you can have different, um, different aims uh, when you start with the question of land inequality. It might be, as you're saying, land utilization inequality or land ownership inequality. On the first one has been the one that has been the most studied. So a lot of uh, papers and research has uh, looked at land utilization, which would be uh, basically to what extent people can use land to produce something out of it. So that would be one aspect of land inequality. Another, I think, different aspect would be to look at to what extent people can own land, which is the approach that we're going to take in this paper. And I think it's equally, if not more important, because land is an asset that is very important in itself and it can be used as collateral and in itself to have access to more credit and can be an important factor for capital accumulation in the long run and not just the utilization of land. And that's particularly important in developing countries, which is really the focus of your paper, right? So in this paper, we're going to focus on the developing countries 
given that they are the most populated one and the ones that are the most dependent on land for their livelihoods. And land concentration can have different implications for developing countries. And they are distributed in which region of the world? The countries are distributed in Latin America, Africa, and Asian countries. We had a wide geographic scope in mind to try to represent a different uh, context and different areas in the world. One key aspect of your work is really this effort to gather information on land ownership across a really large number of countries. How many countries do you have information so far, we have concentrated our efforts on those countries that have the best quality surveys. We have selected around 10 to 12 countries. The plan will be to include more and more as we go on. I was wondering, how did you gather all this information? What was the main source of information that you used to measure inequality? I think this is probably one of the, the main novelty of this paper, to understand what we bring with this paper and how we measure land inequality in this paper, I think it's, it's, uh, it's good to take a step back and understand what has been done so far in this literature. And uh, while looking at this literature, it, one very clearly understands that most of the research on land inequality has been relying on census data. And the fact that it bases itself on census data shapes the measure of inequality that they are going to take, but also the way they're going to measure it. Census data has been designed to kind of document all the plots of land that exist in a country. And by definition, the scope of it is to have a clear register of, of the plots of land. So by definition, it's going to look at holdings. The formal definition of the unit of observation of the census data would be agricultural holdings, which does not necessarily mean land ownership, so land owned. So to, to give a very simple example, if you have, if a single person has three or four different holdings in the country, a surveyor for the census is going to measure four plots of land, so four holdings, without necessarily linking it back to the same person. So in our paper, we tried to, we, we, we thought again about the question of land inequality and our aim being to look at land ownership inequality we were not really satisfied with the way that the census looked at the question, and which is why we moved away from the census and we looked back at surveys and what surveys had to offer on the question. So basically surveys, since it's on at the household level, it allowed us to look at all the plots of land that a household owns. So that's, I think, one of the novelty of this paper is to really focus the question on ownership and try to determine as best as we can uh, the different plots of land that are owned by a single household to be able to measure the full extent of inequality, as in the first case using the census. The measure of inequality that's going to come out of uh, using the census by the definition I, I just gave before would underestimate inequality since you're not really capturing the full extent as you're not assigning each plot to its owner. So the region that has the best or at least the most comparable surveys across country is the African countries. The survey that is held in this country is the LSMS. 
the Living Standard Measurement Survey that is overseen by the World Bank and done at the country level. The advantage of those surveys is that the questions are asked and are measured in a very systematic and homogeneous way. Some other countries have not conducted the LSMS. So for those countries, we have dig recent surveys that are done at the country level, which would be the case in Latin American countries, but also Asian countries that conduct their own surveys that are also of pretty good quality that we've been able to include in our work. The additional challenge that you face when you move towards the surveys is that you have to do the additional step of cleaning them and making sure that you're comparing uh, the same things across countries. And what are the patterns that you observe in terms of land inequality in developing countries? In terms of land area inequality, you would have the Latin American countries being the most unequal one in terms of land distribution. The top 10 land shares would be around 80%, which is really high, compared to African countries that would have a top 10 income shares of around 35%. And this is going to change depending on the definitions of land ownership or the measurement of land inequality that you are going to look at. And one important point that uh, you talk about in your paper is the fact that accounting for landless increases inequality in certain places. Can you, can you tell us why? So far, the estimates of land inequality, since it has been based on the census data, by construction only looked at landholders. If you do not account for the landless, you're mechanically underestimating uh, the true picture of land inequality. And knowing that in the in developing countries, the landless population constitute a significant share of, of the population, that is definitely one factor that cannot be ignored. And it, it affects the measure of land inequality, particularly in certain countries. Do you have an example of a place where it really matters compared to another where it doesn't change that much, the, the figures? Accounting for landless is going to matter when the proportion of landless is important. So if you look at the different world regions, the landless population in Latin America and Southern Asia would account for around 40% of the population. While in African countries, it's going to be around 30, and in China and Vietnam, it would be around 7%. So there are institutional and cultural differences behind these landless variation across countries. Yes, indeed. Cultural and institutional factors are going to be important to explain the variations in the share of landless population that I was uh, sharing before. Uh, for instance, China and Vietnam are going to be special cases in the sense that private property is less clearly defined than in the other regions of the world, but they still have extensive rights over the land, which explains why they have very low rates of landless population. Here, I want to introduce land value. Land value inequality is going to be different from land area in the same way as accounting or not for landless population is going to make a difference in the sense that the value per hectare of land might not be the same in different countries. So if you imagine that in a country, the value of per hectare is very high for big farms or big plots of land, while in another country, it's the least valuable land, then you will end up with different pictures. That was another point that we brought to the table, which 
was rather than only focus on the sizes, so in terms of hectares distribution of land, to actually convert that into what value it might have on the market and from there estimate the distribution of land inequality from a different perspective. And what we see in the results is that it actually also changes the picture that we have. So while in some countries it's not going to matter at all, for instance, in China, Vietnam and Pakistan, it does not seem to make much of a difference. In other countries, it can lead to higher or lower estimates. Why is it so in Latin America? Why typically the size and the value are not correlated the same way that in Africa? So that's a very interesting pattern. And it's something that we will still be digging for quite a bit, I think. Our guess on this would be that the, the biggest farms are the least productive ones. It might be driven by the fact that this might be large areas, large plots of land that are pastures or for animal grazing and so on in Latin American countries. La minute technique. So you mentioned that you look both at the Gini measure of inequality, which is kind of the standard measure in, in inequality literature, but you also use the top shares that have become increasingly popular in this, uh, in this literature. And in this podcast, researchers take one minute to talk about one technical aspect of their work. Could you please explain the pros and cons of both measures and whether they give you a full picture of global land inequality? The Gini coefficient has been used quite a bit in the literature on income and wealth inequality, and even more in terms of land inequality. So the Gini is uh, basically a measure of inequality that tries to summarize the whole distribution in one figure. So you will have a single number that will tell you or give you an idea of how far the distribution is from the perfect equality situation and hence use that number to compare one country to the other or compare one distribution to the other. So basically the Gini coefficient, when it's zero, it's going to be synonymous to perfect equality. You would imagine a situation where everyone owns exactly the same thing. And it would be one, when there's perfect inequality. So if one person owns everything, the advantage of the Gini is that you have a single number. People have been moving away from using genies now to use top shares. The top income or top wealth or top land shares in the case of this paper would be basically the share of income, wealth or land that is owned by a group of the population. So if you're thinking about the top 10 land shares, you would interpret it as the share of land that is owned by the top 10% of the population. So in this case, perfect equality would be if the top 10 land share would own 10% of total land. And from there on, you can imagine if the top 10% land share own 30%, it would mean that they own three times their fair share of the land or the income or the wealth. And the advantage of using the top shares is that it gives you more information at different points of the distribution. So you might think of, uh, you want to look at the top 1%, top 10, bottom 50. It gives you information at different points of the distribution. I think they're also much more intuitive in terms of their interpretation as anyone you can understand these concepts. And just for comparison, how do you relate land inequality, global land inequality, to global income inequality, for instance? Are the distribution more extreme? What can you say about this? 
Land distribution tends to be much more unequally distributed than income inequality by the fact that land is an asset that is accumulated over time in a faster fashion than would income be accumulated. The fact that the effect of distribution centuries ago still have an effect today means that people have been accumulating this capital over time and hence you end up with a distribution that's much more unequal. So for instance, the numbers that I've been giving before for Latin American countries of around a top 10% of uh, 80% is something that you would rarely see when you look at uh, an income distribution, for instance. I see. So there is some historical persistence behind this pattern of land inequality that you document. And I imagine that this is kind of a first step in a broader research agenda that you have on the topic. Can you tell us about the next steps and what do you think are the most important dimensions when you study land inequality? We want to pursue from here in different directions. I think the most important ones would be to try to look at the macro level and as well as go forward in the micro level. So at the macro level, we would like to understand how important land is in the GDP of the countries. So we know for a fact that agricultural land is important, but we want to quantify how much it's important in the different countries. On the measurement aspect, there are some aspects that we have left out in this version of the project, which would be, for instance, communal land which is land owned in a community, which is something that is very practiced in African countries, for instance, but is not as obvious or clear how to distribute that among the population. So there is some technical aspects that comes in play when you want to try to understand how to distribute those land that is not clearly owned by anyone in particular. But also another step would be to try to combine the census and the survey data. We clearly know today that the census data, as well as the survey, both have their own limitations, but also have some advantages. And the best scenario would be to try to take advantage of both sources of data and try to combine them together. The survey data is likely to be underreported at the top. So those who have the biggest uh, plots of land are likely to under-report what they own as land. What we want to do in the next step is to kind of correct for that using the census data. There are new techniques that are being developed to try to see how to combine these different sources while remaining very coherent. Okay, well, before we wrap up, I wanted to ask you if you have a particular recommendation for our listeners of uh, a book, a movie, something that inspired you. One of the books that really made me think about the whole question, that would be uh, Down and Out in Paris and London by George Orwell. Since I lived in Paris and London, I think that book really gives you a perspective on poverty that, that has completely changed my personal view on poverty. What he describes is from an intellectual point of view, his own poverty in like the richest cities of the world and has a very, very particular take on the subject. So I would definitely recommend that book. Great. Thank you so much, Yajna, for your time. Thank you. Thank you for having me. This was Inequality Talks, a podcast recorded by Clémentine Vanetonter in Toronto. Music is by The Count. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for the next episode.